That's the problem that we have in the CPA world. Everybody gets tested on everything. Nobody really knows anything. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Blake, happy Friday the 13th. Happy Friday the 13th. You know who was afraid of Friday the 13th? Arnold Schoenberg, the famous composer. Well, he's famous in classical music circles. He wrote a bunch of music that nobody actually likes outside of the classical world. (laughs) He was afraid of Friday the 13th and he died on Friday the 13th. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it. We're done. Wrap show up. That was it. Fun fact of the day. And there's a name for actually people who are afraid of Friday the 13th. It's called triskaidekaphobia. So, it's a real condition. Mm-hmm. Stephen King is also afraid of Friday the 13th. He won't stop reading a book on a page that is a multiple of 13. Wow. There's, um, is, there a, is there a fear of clouds or fear of cloud? There is. It is nephophobia, nephophobia. It's from the Greek nephos, clouds, fear of clouds. Presence of clouds or even taking pictures of clouds can cause anxiety. Many sufferers are eager to look at the clouds frequently and when in panic will not go outside with clouds in the sky. We have our show title. Perfect. Nephophobia. <laughs> Paste it in. I like it. Well, you posted, you posted on Twitter that you were above the clouds. I saw, I think you flew, you went to Seattle. I saw a picture of you landing. Yes. So, I was up at the Digital CPA conference with Giraffe and it's a small conference. So, it's, it's grown a lot in the recent years. I think attendees number around a little over 600 when you include the speakers and the sponsors. I think there's something like 30 something apps that exhibit uh, small booths. And I got a bit of news that came out of the conference. Bill Reeb, the chair of the AICPA, announced the new proposed CPA licensure model. This is part of the evolution of CPA project that the AICPA and NASBA, the Association of State Boards of Accountancy, have been working on in response to everybody's complaints that the CPA is no longer relevant. So they put out a request for comment saying, If you have input, if you want to give input on the future of the CPA license and how we're going to design curriculum or what's going to be on the exam, go to evolutionofcpa.org and put in your comments. Over 2,000 people responded, myself included, and they have summarized the feedback in the website, evolutionofcpa.org. In general, the majority of people uh, said that, yes, technology needs to be a big component of the new license. Uh, a new licensure model, but it it also go, needs to go beyond that. The AICPA and NASBA went back and consolidated this these comments and came up with a proposed model. It's very high level at this point. The devil, of course, will be in the details. Essentially, Bill Reeb described it at the conference, announced it at the Digital CPA conference as modeled after how engineers get licensed. The idea is instead of having every CPA have to know the same thing about regulation, uh, gap, and audit, and tax, and business, that we have a core curriculum and then allow for specialization. But you would still get a CPA. There's still only one CPA license. So we're, we're taking that core curriculum or we're taking the current curriculum and sort of shrinking it into a core, and then you can go specialize. And so... The core would include technology. So, the core is accounting, audit, tax, and tech. And then the three specializations are, number one, 
Number one, tax compliance and planning. Then number two, business reporting and analysis. And number three, information systems and controls. They have this nice little uh, graphic of this, yes. right? And, and the core is the middle of the donut here. And, and it's your basic accounting, audit, tax, and tech. And then there's three spokes, right? That go out to the three things you just listed, the tax compliance, the business reporting, and the information systems, right? So is it going to be where you're going to ha- now pass the core and your CPA, and then you'll get an additional letter of some type or something like with, with an emphasis on tax? Or So I'm not sure about the details, but the idea is every CPA will take the core Yep. Uh, and then you will specialize in that the exam content will relate to whatever specialty you're choosing. So if I choose tax compliance and planning, for instance, I'm not going to get, I'm going to get tested more on tax compliance and planning and less on, I'm not going to get the specialization testing on business reporting or on information systems and controls. But then uh, that now, once you pass and you get your designation, me as a consumer of accountants, how do I know you're no good at reporting and analysis? I'm guessing, I, I think this is what should happen, I, that you know, on your license, it would say what your specialty is. But it shouldn't really matter to the general public because you're still a CPA and you still took those core, core classes, okay. classes and you were tested on the core elements. Again, it's all in the details. And the big question I have is what is actually going to get cut from the current curriculum to shrink that core to make room for the specialization or what is going to get moved from the current core, which is, well, there's no current course, just everything, right? What is going to get moved into these different specialization areas? And I I hope it's a lot, actually. I want a, a lot of specialization because that's the problem that we have in the CPA world is that everybody gets tested on everything. Nobody really knows anything. So you end up with a ton of new CPAs or graduates from these programs who are superb generalists and they don't know how to do any tax in real life or how to really do an audit or how to really do anything tech oriented. Well, currently there's not barely any tech at all, but with more specialization, we'll be more useful to our employers when we graduate. So if, if I'm a tax specialist, I can go into a tax firm, I think this is the whole point, and then actually be able to do a tax return. Maybe I even learn how to do them in school. Or if I specialize in information systems and controls, I can go into an audit and I actually understand how an ERP system works. Or if I study study business reporting and analysis, I could actually go work in a virtual CFO firm or I could go work for uh, as a management accountant and actually know what I'm I'm doing as opposed to having to learn it all on the job. All right. No, I, I mean, it, it looks so simple on the graph. It really does. Uh and again, yeah, it is simple. <laughs> it's very high level at this point. So it's a draft licensure model. They're going to collect feedback and then continue down with this. And, and let me update you on the time frame too. I was just going to ask that next. What's the timeline for this? Uh, that's the thing. So they're going to collect feedback through the end of 2019 and into 2020, build out more details of the model. The goal is to finalize the approach to the updated licensure model in summer of 2020. And then after that is finalized, establish implementation plans for a multi-year effort to implement. It's going to take a lot of work too, because the CPA exam will have to change. There may be different versions of the CPA exam now, and the universities are going to have to update their curriculum. And all of the test prep companies are going to have to update their curriculum. So it's a multi-year effort, but this is a good start, I think. We'll be talking about it because it's this summer. There's this summer. Updates. So. So, so if you want to leave feedback uh, on this... Head to evolutionofcpa.org or email feedback at evolutionofcpa.org.
And I got one more thing from the digital CPA conference that I, that I thought was funny. Now, now I'm going to get a little more critical of the profession. Oh, I, I know where you're going with this. I saw you tweet the, this picture. I saw yeah. this picture. Yes. So I was uh, walking around the conference and looking at signs for rooms. There were like different breakout lunches on the first day of the conference. And I, I walked past this room with, you know, probably a dozen tables. And it says, Aging Partners Lunch. That was the name of the session. That was the name of the lunch, Aging Partners Lunch. And so, I tweeted out the picture of that and I said, uh, for anyone who thinks that the profession is not inclusive enough, because we're, we're definitely very inclusive of, of aging partners. <laughs> and actually, there was a related article on the AICPA blog about diversity that I was contemplating on the way back from the conference because it's an AICPA conference and it's a lot of larger firms, mid-sized and large firms, and they are not known for being particularly diverse in the upper ranks. And this report suggests we're not really making a lot of progress in diversity. A new report from the AICPA called 2019 Trends in the Supply of Accounting Graduates and the Demand for Public Accounting Recruits says that 44% of undergraduate students, 44% of undergraduate students and 42% of accounting graduates over four in 10 are Black, Latino, American Indian, or Alaskan Native, Asian or Pacific Islander, multi-ethnic or other. Four in 10 undergraduate students and accounting graduates are minorities. This reflects a significant boost from 10 years ago when the numbers were only three in 10. So that's increased 10%, right? Or 10% more undergraduate students and, grad and accounting graduates are now uh, in the minority groups. Well, Total minority hiring by US CPA firms has remained completely flat since 2012. So we're not keeping up with the change in the demographics, the makeup of the profession. We're not even hiring. Uh, uh, so the in, bottom of the funnel, if you want to think about it that way, is incredibly diverse. Getting more diverse, getting more diverse, and then instantly straight out of hiring, it's already the funnel's broken. It's not even broken. At, it's like people are it's like, oh, it's broken at the partner level or people can't get to a certain level, but it sounds like it's broken at the hiring level. Yeah, exactly. It's not just about moving up the ranks. It's We, we aren't even bringing people in that are diverse. So, how, how can you build diversity at the, at the partner level if you're not even bringing in the right proportion of people at the entry level? And the article is actually titled, How to Make the Accounting Profession More Diverse and Inclusive. And then I read through it and there's actually no real suggestions for how there's to make no how. The, there's there's no, no how. I don't see anyone talking about dramatic uh, changes to make it happen. So we're just going to keep, sounds like, bemoaning it. And meanwhile, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the step one is just to get people talking about it, right? That's all we can do. Well, uh, but that's I the thing it's... is people have been talking about it for years. And it hasn't changed since 2012. It hasn't changed. So, uh, you know, and we're in 2019 now. Anyway, just two of my uh, takeaways from uh, that conference. Cool. That's my top, that's my top story of the week. Your top story? I got- um, Top two. Top two. You just, it's, you I cheated. Sneak extra ones in, right? Yeah. Um, so, there was an update for QuickBooks Live Bookkeeping this week. It was on the 9th on the Firm of the Future blog. And on December 10th, they're going to launch- a uh, new service that's part of QuickBooks Live. Uh, so, I'm sorry. It's not really part of QuickBooks Live, but it's done using the QuickBooks Live marketing and tech stack. It says that if you buy this, you don't have to actually be a QuickBooks Live customer going forward. 
But the QuickBooks Live personnel will service it. Service it, yeah. So what they're launching is on December 10th, a QuickBooks Live bookkeeping setup service. Forget this, but like 50 bucks. 50, not 500, not 5,000. $50. So if you sign up for QuickBooks Online and you want to get your QuickBooks Online set up from day one, a QuickBooks Live bookkeeper specialist will help you set up your QuickBooks for 50 bucks. So what's included in that? So they're going to set up your chart of accounts. They're going to connect, help you get all your bank accounts connected up. They're going to customize and help you create and send that first invoice, connect an app, um, and then help you uh, categorize and reconcile any transactions and get your reports created that you need. So really wow. get you like an uh, just a simple an onboarding to do this. Has there been any reaction from the ProAdvisor community? Uh, people are just up in arms about this, right? Because it's like, how can they charge so cheap for this? But they're getting people into the service. It's a, We talked about this with Amazon Prime two episodes ago. You can lose money on setup if you get a recurring revenue customer. And that's classic software as a service you know, methodology. But it's it's competing. I mean, if I were still in business with my firm, CloudSourced Accounting, which you know, I sold, uh, we charged at least $500 to set up a zero file. And if I had to compete against zero, I'd, I wouldn't have been very happy with it. I wouldn't have done it. Even though this is news for this week, this is not news for Intuit. So I'll give you a little uh, background on my history. Okay. Way back in 1997 and 98, I actually launched something called QuickBooks Simple Start. And we did this exact thing. So if somebody bought QuickBooks Desktop, when they were buying that, we were either charging anywhere from $99 to $250 because it was hard to scale. And I think we kept creeping the price up to offer this as a service. So right. someone would buy QuickBooks Desktop. They would sign up for Quick Start. We would send them, usually fax, a, a paper form. And they'd fill out a bunch of information about their business. They'd send that back to us either via private, usually via fax. We would basically create the QuickBooks desktop file for them, create the whole backup file, send them the backup file. They would restore it in their QuickBooks on their local machine. And then we would walk through like a two-hour training, you know, show them where everything's mm-hmm. at. Here's your chart of accounts. Here's your invoice template, blah, 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 blah. So it's exactly the same service, but it just was not scalable in the desktop days. So Intuit was, was offering the this service. Problem, what was the problem back in the day? Uh, Cloud didn't exist. <laughs> like, like we're you're 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 faxing paperwork back and forth okay, to set up somebody's. It. There's no bank feeds. Like it was not a scalable thing to do. But now, obviously, with QuickBooks Online and the QuickBooks Live, the video call was in there. Right. But you didn't even have video conferencing. I, I think we took regular old phone calls. There was no screen sharing in those days either. So now it's doable because of the technology. So they're trying it again. Exactly. Now, I don't know if $50, you can subsidize that, right, with a subscription to QuickBooks Online. But it's always been a problem that customers have had. They get QuickBooks, they need help setting it up. Like that problem has not gone away into it's probably been hearing about it for 20 years. It was there 20 years ago, and it'll be here 10 years from now. It's so they're trying to solve it. And so this is not really new news per se right. um, from an Intuit perspective, but the $50 price point is amazing. Yeah. To me, this could be more beneficial long-term for into it and QuickBooks Online than any anything related to the actual QuickBooks Live service. Because every customer of QuickBooks Online, well, not every, but the vast majority, I imagine, would need help with setup. And then maybe they can want to do it themselves. They're not willing to pay for bookkeeping. The, the bookkeeping live service is going to be a much smaller segment of their user base, whereas everybody is going to need help with setup. And it's going to help them actually get set up and reduce churn. I imagine Intuit would probably try to do this for free. The $50 is just to have make sure somebody has some table stakes in the game. Right. Because yeah. the lifetime value of a customer, I imagine, if they buy QuickBooks Desktop or they get QuickBooks Online and they never set it up, 
and they, they just don't use it. And then they cancel after three months, four months, because they're like, I've never used QuickBooks once. Why am I paying for it? That is way more expensive than helping them get on it successfully and being a customer for three, four, five, six, ten 10 years, right? And so it, this is a, it makes sense why they're doing this. The problem exists and they're just utilizing their tech stack they've built to solve it. It's a smart business move if they can figure out how to offer the service and not piss off the pro-advisor community. That's going to be the hard part, I think, with this, as, as it has been with the whole QuickBooks Live enterprise. And now let's take a break from the news because we got a review. You want to read it? Sure. A must-listen for small business bookkeepers. Five stars. I don't know exactly how I first stumbled upon this podcast a few months back. No matter, it has transformed my mindset and future vision for my accounting and tax practice. Very informative, totally entertaining, exceptionally insightful. Don't miss it. And that is from Anchorman04 via Apple Podcasts in the United States of America. Thank you, Anchorman. Stay classy. Stay classy. (laughs) Stay classy. If you want to leave us a review, you can do so. Well, where's the best place for them to do that, David? Apple Podcast is great. And Podchaser. So it's podchaser.com. You can find the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Our links are in the show notes. Basically, if you're not an Apple person and you're not an Apple Podcast, all the rest of you, you want to go to Podchaser to write a review. So thank you everyone for listening and for writing those reviews. It really helps us out. Appreciate it. Quick small announcement about the the merchandise store. So we had those cassette tape t-shirts that some people were getting and putting photos of on Twitter, etc. Those were limited edition. They are no longer available as of today. The You can no longer get those, but stay tuned in the future. We'll have some other limited edition, exciting uh, designs that are out there. So let's keep talking about technology. So this was an article by Carlton Collins, CPA in the Journal of Accountancy. The question here is, in your opinion, what are the top three or four technologies CPAs should be using? Number one, Microsoft Excel. Number two, the internet. Number three, smartphones. And number four, GPS. That's it. Those are the top four technologies CPAs should be using in the Journal of Accountancy tech column this month of December. And I had to check the byline to make sure I wasn't reading an article from 2009 or maybe even 1999. Although we didn't have smartphones in 1999. We did have... GPS? I really got stuck on this one. And so um, Carlton Collins says that uh, his fourth favorite technology is GPS, which has, quote, made my life immensely easier. Gone are the days of following poorly written directions or old paper maps. Whether it involves client locations, friends' homes, or faraway vacation spots, GPS technology helps me navigate the world more smoothly. For those youngsters who don't know what it's like trying to find a remote CPE venue in the Wisconsin countryside well past midnight without GPS navigation, especially with a 7 a.m. CPE presentation looming, You'll just have to take my word for it that it's not much fun. So, uh, you know, what's funny about this to me is like these technologies, right? Microsoft Excel, great. Yes, awesome technology has been around for 30 plus years. The internet, also 30 plus years. Smartphones, I don't know. How long has smartphones been around? At least 10? Longer? Smartphones? uh, I don't know. I I, I remember. I a smartphone like 97, 98. Like they've been around a while. Oh, smartphone. Sorry, smartphone. Sorry. No, smartphone Smart, was like real uh, smartphones. 08, with yes. like, uh, yeah. 06, 07, 08, yeah. Sorry. And then GPS, man. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember using MapQuest and Google Maps. So, David, what are your top four technologies for CPS? So, so, so I quickly typed them out before you started reading this, right? Um, okay. So one of the ones, though, be- 
just of his, of his list, I'm surprised timesheets aren't, aren't on there or a time clock system. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, and actually, like paper punching time clocks, like, I mean, those are amazing. To track the billable hour. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I, as cloud, OCR or data entry type tool, yep. right, to automate that, uh, workflow automation tools, some type, like for your firm, et cetera. And then, like, something to manage your communications for your team, Slack, MS Teams, you know, some of So, like, team chat. Yeah. yeah did, so. Wait, cloud computing, right? Cloud GL. Yeah, cloud, yeah. A- APIs, right? Connecting apps together. We'll have to make our own list and submit it to the Journal of Accountancy. Well, I, I think as we think about a prediction show, right, towards the end of the year here, yeah. the news is slowing down. We're going to have to create up some filler material. I found a great article. It's the 101 trends in AI we can go through. Oh, uh, boy. Not this so, week. Not this week. Coming up. Okay. Coming up. Stay listening. Don't, don't, turn on, don't turn that dial right now because we're not going to do that right now. But yeah, 101 Trends in AI should be a, a fun article to go through. All right. I have a lot of quick app news, but um, before we get into that, I have some government-related accounting news. Okay. Or uh, a contrast. Don't tell, me, don't tell me that you're going to talk about California again. Well, that's what ties this together, though. So we talked about this in previous episodes, and we don't have to deep dive on it, but California's <laughs> been building their accounting system, right? And it now costs the state of California, $1.8 billion, and it's still not done. Is it $1.8 billion? Wow. Or $1.1 billion, sorry. $1.1 sorry. Billion. It's over a billion dollars. Well, they can't even report what they've spent on it, actually. That's the gist of this article, is they cannot produce proper reports on different divisions of the government. The, it, like, like, what kind of reports are we talking about? Um, so, there's the government accountability groups. They're basically mm-hmm. like press organizations that are trying to request reports. And they're getting answers that are basically saying, we can't even get to the data ourselves. So, this is an article on Forbes that you brought called, California's accounting system costs taxpayers $1.1 and still can't produce a state checkbook. I guess this group, openthebooks.com, they publish what they call a state checkbook for every state. And the only one they can't get one from is California. (laughs) And that's because our state ERP system still doesn't work, right? Our accounting system, after all these years, can't. The state controller is saying, uh, in response to a freedom of information request, that we don't even have these reports. There is no there is no report that shows all the bills that we paid. Yeah. And the funny part about this author of the article, so he's based in Illinois, who is... Illinois has been ripe with corruption in their government, right? And he's like, even even here, we were able to get, uh, we had less abuse and more transparent spending than the state of California does. Yeah. It's and it's just getting worse, right? Um, but well, they're, they're fighting them and, and they're bringing litigation uh, forward to really get them to open up this uh, data. And the importance of it is, right, we need outside groups like this to hold government accountable and reduce waste. And there's a great chart in this article that highlights the spending in California, which is $1.5 trillion of government spending, state government spending. And the California controller, Betty Yee, has only identified $4.3 billion of waste, which is, that's a lot of money, but it's still only 0.34% of all of our spending. And how can we as citizens figure out if that's right without being able to ask for a checkbook? And one point. One billion of that is the accounting system that they're building from scratch instead of like, – like, I think we said the previous episode, <laughs> instead they could have just, like, just bought Sage Intact. Yeah, like, they could have – they probably the could have bought NetSuite at a certain point, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's rather insane. So, that's the state oh. of California. But to contrast that, let's let's go to the other side of the globe and go down under to Australia. 
Okay. So the Australian governments have agreed on a national API standard. What? Wow. So the standards are going to allow governments as well as third parties. So this would be apps, uh, other companies to share and reuse enhanced data in real time. So, so all the government computers are going to agree on some standards so they can talk to each other. That is so amazing. And I can't imagine that happening here. So, well, because we, we have to build an accounting system before we can have an API. That's really impressive. Yeah. And so they're, they're, they're co-designing this model together. They have a national API standards board, basically. So it's, a, it's just such a contrast, right? And then actually, I think this is a good example of for accounting firms, right? California is trying to build a closed system themselves from scratch. So this would be like, you, have, you need a tool in your accounting firm. Like, we're just going to build it versus I could just use an existing app that's out there. Maybe it's not perfect, but it's 95% there and good enough. And I actually have something that's working and I'm not wasting money. And if I need to add on or bolt something onto it, I use APIs, right? And so I think that's a big difference of just building something from scratch. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. It just blows my mind that California decided to build their own accounting system rather than licensing Oracle or SAP or something. Like what? why? What are the other states doing? They're clearly not doing this or we'd be hearing about it. Well, they're also going to sit and watch California now. <laughs> None of them are going to, you know, and it's a race, right? Is the accounting system going to be done first or the train? Like that's the other yeah. boondoggle there. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. Many times when choosing a payroll service, you have to choose between a new startup with a great app or an established company whose tech may feel a little behind the times. With OnPay, you get the best of both worlds. A great app from an established company that's providing payroll for over 30 years in all 50 states. OnPay is an easy-to-use, full-service payroll with simple, straightforward pricing and it includes all their features. Employee self-onboarding, HR tools, health insurance, workers' comp tracking, and 401k. And with an accountant's dashboard and partner program combined with best-in-class integrations with Zero and QuickBooks, OnPay is the right fit for all your clients, whether they have just one or 500 employees. They also handle all the complicated stuff that other payroll providers don't, like agricultural payrolls, including Form 943, multi-state payrolls, and employees with H-2A visas. I'm really excited to tell you that OnPay is offering an exclusive promo code only for the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast to get three free months of OnPay payroll service for any of your clients that you set up by February of 2020. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash onpay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. And use code CAP3FREE when you sign up your clients. That is C-A-P, the number three, F-R-E-E. And to be clear, you cannot get this promo anywhere else. It's only available to the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Well, hey, I mentioned Oracle and I got some news about them. They released their numbers. Oracle shares fell nearly 3% in extended trading Thursday. That would be December 12th after they reported their uh, quarterly revenues and they missed their expectations. Although they did have strong growth with their Fusion and NetSuite cloud applications business. So like with Sage, it's another example, the traditional on-premises ERP business is growing slowly or shrinking. And the thing that's keeping them afloat really is this tremendous growth of their cloud segments. So the acquisition of NetSuite was obviously a good idea. Fusion, Oracle Fusion, which is the cloud version of their ERP software, grew 37%. And NetSuite, which is more the mid-market, grew 29%. So 
really fast 30%, 30, 40% growth. But the cloud services and license support revenue only grew 3%. And cloud license and on-premise license revenue dropped 7.4%. Traditional segments shrinking, the new ones going gangbusters. It makes sense. I mean, we've seen this across the board with all the cloud software apps, right? QuickBooks and Zero, we're growing at 30% a year. Intact is growing at that. Uh, I think even Sage reported out before some their cloud their cloud org is all up. Yep. But you're, yeah, the desktop stuff's not, not not going as well. So you said Oracle stock was down. Yes. So that's because all those investors are take obviously took all their money and bought Bill.com stock. Did you see Bill.com was up 60% on their IPO yesterday? It's crazy. They priced it at 22%, which was already above what they had originally estimated, I don't know, weeks ago. And then it it closed at 3550. So if you got in early, uh you did very very well in that first day. It's crazy. They raised over 200 million, 216 million if you round up. And they're valued at 1.6 billion now. Wow, that happened quick. Uh, this is the maturity and growth of cloud accounting, and I just I love mean, the fact that, that was a, a teeny little, it, a teeny, but it was an add-on app to QuickBooks. Basically, that that's all it was is an add-on app that solved a workflow problem for QuickBooks. And now it's a company. Yeah. Now they still haven't turned a profit, but their revenues are growing. In their most recent quarter, they reported thirty-five million in revenue, which is up from twenty-two million year over year, and they had five point seven million in losses. So they're clearly spending to grow, but they got plenty of money now with that IPO. So investors are bullish that they're going to start making raking in big profits in the future. Really, really awesome to see. And as we spoke about in previous episodes, over half of their revenues, around half, might be slightly over, is from accounting firms. Accounting firms are a huge segment that have helped Bill.com go public. So it proves that you can sell to accounting firms and build a big business that then IPOs. Maybe it'll happen with a podcast. Yeah. You know, maybe we'll have an IPO someday. <laughs> That's true. Maybe one day. Yeah. So I have uh, some interesting news around the whole uh, bank feeds in a way. That's the simplest way to think, to talk about this. So last week um, I saw an open letter um, or an opinion piece from uh, the policy lead at Plaid and the global policy, uh, the head of global policy at Cabbage. That battle, right, between banks and fintech is continuing. And just just for some background, so Plaid is um, really powering most of the apps we use, right? They they really they connect to the banks and provide those bank feeds to a lot of the apps that we everybody's using, right? Right. And Cabbage uh, uses those feeds, and Cabbage's entire business is basically based on giving you loans based on how much cash you have in your bank account versus how much um, inventory you possibly have in your accounting system and your accounts receivable. And they're adjusting your credit real time and, and offering you instant loans like that. And that's what they're using Plaid for. They're they're connecting with Plaid securely to your bank account so they can see what is happening at any every day. Exactly. Right. And then, then Cabbage also connects to your QuickBooks or Zero, right? And reads that data in. So obviously the banks in general, everybody's gone through this, right? Your bank feed stops working. They're screen scraping. And so there's a lot of um, proposals. There's a lot of work being done. There's a lot of discussions being done about the banks don't want this to happen, but all the fintech companies need it. Like you need the bank data to build these apps. I mean, I mean, what could cloud accounting be if there was no bank feeds? No, it'd be... <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's all about automating the flow of the data. That's that's yep. the value of cloud. And, and I mean, there's other 
values, but like that's what really speeds things up. Yeah. And so they basically, uh, the clearinghouse has re- uh, proposed a data sharing agreement and the clearinghouse is essentially representing the banks. And these apps feel that it's too bank oriented. The banks are arguing this is going to give more control to the c- consumers. And the apps are arguing that it's too bank oriented. and It's not going to um, give control because they can block access to the 3000 fintech solutions that are out there. Like just for whatever, any reason? Exactly, right? And the heart of the proposal reflects a vision where your bank must pre-approve any fintechs apps before you use them. And the bank could terminate access at any time if the service contradicts, quote unquote, the bank's business guidelines. This vague wording means your bank could stop you from sharing your own data with the company whose services you choose to use. Oh, and that is what the uh, Plaid and Cabbage, that's what Plaid and Cabbage are, are saying in response to this proposal. That's correct. And they, they're concerned because the banks could be, well, oh, you're giving out loans. We're not going to let you access the data because we give out loans. Right. Right. To force you to use their accounting systems. And we can get into this, you know, we've talked about this a little bit in the back. They, the banks are trying to build out accounting systems now, right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to build these app stacks. So, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But that ties into some news from this week. So, JP Morgan Chase, so Chase, they've signed an agreement with Yodely. So, Yodely is a competitor to... Um, Plaid. So they offer a bank feed service for different apps. So if if you're like, hey, I don't want to use Plaid, I'll go use Yodely to get my bank information pulled down. And so essentially, they're going to offer more controls to you as a a customer. And the article I have, and it has a link to it, to this screenshot actually in the article as well. The the screenshot actually has Intuit Mint, TurboTax, and QuickBooks here. And you can go in and choose which account specifically you're going to share with Mint, which account you're going to share with QuickBooks, and which account you're going to share with TurboTax. Uh, as opposed to me just handing over my login and them being able to access anything that I can. That's correct. And then the, this is actually, I think, more important is, and, and I always think that it's true at the apps as well, right? If, if you have QuickBooks or Zero, there should be some place in QuickBooks to go in and disconnect apps. Mm-hmm. On the bank side, you can go in and disconnect. You can say, stop sharing account info with Mint or with QuickBooks or TurboTax. Because that ultimately, like you may not remember all the places, place companies you've gained, gave access to your bank account. Yeah, the, the banks don't give you a list of that. You can't see that. I don't think the banks know it, um, but there's no place for you to disconnect. So, they, so they've signed an agreement to go a little bit deeper. But this is, again, it's just one bank and Yodley. This is not all the banks. That's correct, right? And I mean, Chase is, Chase is pushing people to use the APIs, right? They're, they're, they don't want people screen scraping Chase and they're trying to push the APIs out there more. And, and that's probably going to help them win in the long term. Hmm. People will just not use the other banks eventually if they can't get their data out. Um, it goes to, to the Australian government example. If you have APIs, it's just going to enable everybody else to, to win here. Uh, I have another article from uh, Accounting Web in the UK. And they're, they're having the same discussions there between fintech companies competing with banks in the UK as well. And ultimately, uh, I thought there was an interesting uh, quote from Carl Reeder. If the banks move quickly enough, they will own the lot. If not, the likes of Intuit or Zero will find a way to consolidate their service offerings, provide banking, and close the gate. That's exactly it. If Intuit can't get what it's, it needs for its products, they'll just start their own bank. They'll figure out how to do it. And I fully agree with this because this is the American Express Costco negotiation. The banks think the customers love them. They think like, hey, if we turn off access, Intuit and Zero are screwed. No, yeah. It doesn't work that way. And American Express thought that was true with Costco. Costco wound up dropping American Express and they didn't lose any customers. All those people just moved to the new Costco visa. 
Yep. They just moved. Yep. American Express lost that bet. And this is the same type of thing happening. People will not switch off of Intuit or QuickBooks or Zero because they love Chase. <laughs> but they will stay with QuickBooks and Zero and they'll switch banks in 10 seconds. They don't care. The banks aren't that important. The banks, they aren't that important. And if they don't figure out how to play nice with the tech companies, I fully agree. The tech companies are just going to figure out how to cut them out entirely. That's what Square's doing. Hey, we're just going to not have any of the money leave Square at all. You'll pay your bills with Square. Your, your employees will get paid through Square. Like all the money will just stay in the Square ecosystem and the banks don't get any of it. I, I agree. I've got some more app news that came out of Digital CPA. Small new partnership that, well, actually it could be a big new partnership that CPA.com is announcing. CPA.com, by the way, is the business arm of the AICPA that partners with apps to promote them to the CPA community and also help them develop the apps to be more helpful for CPA firms. So they announced at the Digital CPA Conference that starting in mid-January, an app called Luca, L-U-K-K-A, will roll out Luca Tax for Professionals, a virtual currency tax preparation tool built specifically for accountants in collaboration with CPA.com. Luca is a New York-based crypto asset software and data solutions provider that built the world's first commercial virtual currency tax calculator. Why is CPA.com getting into this? Well, I learned something uh, in a presentation at the conference. Um, I think it was the president of CPA.com who said that 8 to 14% of the US population own crypto assets. 8 to 14%. So that's, a, that's actually a substantial number. So they own crypto assets and the new 1040 Schedule 1 that we're going to be using for 2019, the first question on that form is, quote, at any time during 2019, did you receive, sell, send, exchange, or otherwise acquire any financial interest in any virtual currency, unquote. So now all those people who have been not really paying attention to their crypto or not telling their tax preparer about their crypto, they're going to have to have a conversation because their tax preparer is going to ask, did, did you own cryptocurrencies? And if you say no, and you do, that's perjury. So now the IRS has put taxpayers and tax professionals in a situation where they have to make a decision as to what is that answer. And so a, a good number of people are going to have to start reporting this if they weren't. And, and the IRS has also been sending thousands of compliance letters to people they believe have crypto who haven't been reporting it. So we need a solution because uh, crypto accounting is not easy, especially the, the tax components. And the reason is that uh, the IRS treats cryptocurrency not as currency, they call them digital assets. They, they, they actually treat them as assets. So it's like every transaction that you have with cryptocurrency, uh, you have to calculate loss, gain and loss on it. Yeah, it's like owning uh, gold or st stock, right? Yeah. Right. And, and that's very difficult to do because uh, it's more difficult than gold actually because there is no one go-to exchange for cryptocurrency. First of all, there's a lot of different cryptocurrencies. There's a lot of different exchanges. The prices are different and there's no close of business. There's no close of business for any of these exchanges in a lot of cases. So th the price is constantly changing. So how do you choose what price? So, so what's the point of like, like the part I'm not reconciling here is what's, what's, what does CPA.com have to do with this app? Like there's 10 other apps that do this, right? right. So they've chosen Luca as the app that they are going to that they are helping and that they are going to recommend. 
And that's, uh, that's one of the functions. It's a piece of equity in the app probably more than less. Well, and that's yeah, how CPA.com works. Like yeah, if, yeah. if people don't know this, CPA.com partners with apps and they earn a percentage of all of the uh, sales of that app to promote it to the CPA community. Now, you know, they're, they're ostensibly, right, offering, creating value by helping the developers uh, reach the community and then also like improve the app to you know, serve CPAs better. And, and there have been some, criti- there's been some criticism, you know, I, 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 I would criticize that as a model because it's, they're too tied to the ACPA that it, it gives, it will give, it, in my opinion, it gives apps that are in this partnership with CPA.com. It gives them a, a it looks like they're getting a blessing from the AICPA. They, well, they, in 100%, they're not. They're only getting a blessing from CPA.com. Well, but right? CPA.com is owned by the AICPA. Exactly. It's giving the impression that the app is blessed by the AICPA. And the argument in favor is that there are way too many apps out there. And so accounting firms, especially midsize and large ones, rely on the AICPA for guidance. And this is a way that they can help point them in the right direction and do the due diligence these firms can't do themselves. It's also a double-edged sword because there's a lot more crappy apps out there than good apps. And I've seen organizations push apps that are not good. And that comes back to bite you. So something you have to be careful about. So do your own uh, due diligence. Don't just take the recommendation of CPA.com, right? Obviously, do your own investigation, look at other alternatives because that's just good business practice. Yep, absolutely. Uh, any more app news? I got a few more stories on the app side. I have a lot of small app news, like one minute, like 30 second stuff that are All right, quick. Let's, if you want me let's to run hammer those. them out. Yeah, let's do hammer it. We'll through, okay. Intuit QuickBooks Payroll, they have some announcements. They're adding an elite payroll level. It's called Elite Payroll. And it's going to uh, help uh, small businesses that want to outsource and set up set up their HR, their benefits, and more. So instead of you just getting your payroll service done by an outsource, you're going to be able to be like, hey, I don't have time to set up my healthcare plan and uh, my benefits and all that. And they're going to set that stuff up for you. So it sounds like kind of like Zenefits or Gusto aspects. Yes. They're getting to that full, uh, full stack, HR plus payroll. I have news from Zero. Now, Zero partners based in the US can map their clients' chart of accounts to lines in US tax forms that include Form 1040, Schedule C and E with one property, and also Forms 1065, 1120, and 1120S. So you can map those accounts in Zero and then export the data as a CSV file that you can then import into the tax software of your choice. Hopefully one day in the future, all the tax software companies will get their API game together because that would be the ideal situation, oh, that's right? that be a long time. Like if, if even Zero could do an API connection, could send this to Pro Series of Intuit, right? That would be the wonderful world, right? When Zero is using an API to talk to an Intuit tax product. Well, That'd be really cool. Speaking of Intuit tax products, I've got a small update for you on Intuit tax products. Pro Series, Intuit Pro Series is now offering features such as undo and redo, making it easier to correct mistakes quickly. Returns can now be locked so they don't change while you're working on them. And the professional version has expanded its range of standard client letters to include one in Spanish and an amendment letter, to name a few. I just thought the undo redo thing was kind of funny. I was just gonna, yeah, uh, that's what you, you, my brain. I stopped listening <laughs> to you. I, I can't get over that. Like you couldn't undo and undo. Like I feel like that's just like copy paste, right? It's just everything just has that. I mean, with no undo redo and no ability to lock a, a return, like you could easily screw things up just with mashing a key by accident on your keyboard. So it's good. I guess it's good, but it just shows the disparity in 
features available in modern cloud SaaS versus traditional tax software, or maybe not. it doesn't even have to do with cloud. It's just that tax software is so far behind everything else. So ripe for disruption, right? This is what makes me sad that Canopy backed off from their tax product because obviously we need something. All right, what else you got? So Zencana is a new point of sale that was released for the cannabis industry. And it does all the stuff, all the, all the point of sales do. It's the one-stop shop to track. You know, they have to track everything from seed to sale. Mm-hmm. And you can go back to, we have that episode we did with um, Bruce Phillips. Not no, Bruce, Bruce Anderson. Bruce, An- Bruce, Bruce Anderson. Anderson um, and his son, Tom Anderson, all about um, the cannabis industry. And you, so if you really want to learn more about that whole seed to sale, the tracking and the complexities with that and the tax implications of all that, definitely do that. What's unique about this is because the company that owns Zencana Zenwork, you may not know Zenwork, but many of you know Tax 1099. Mm-hmm. And so what they're also doing is they're able to, they're going to offer your tax filing services as well inside this point of sale. So instead of just having a point of sale and tracking the seed to the sale, they're going to track all your compliance for your government and the e-filing of that as well. So they're starting to get into that all side right. of it. They're going to do this themselves or are they partnering with a... a- a service provider to do it? From what I can tell, this because they have multiple products. They have like an e-file assist. They have their text 1099. Mm. They, um, they, so they do different types of uh Oh, got filings. it. Okay. I, I understand now. So they're using the tax 1099 technology to e-file a lot of these compliance forms that the, the cannabis folks have to do because there's a ton of compliance around that. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it, as you remember that episode, it, it's ridiculous compliance, right? Obviously, it's an app with one specialty here. They're, they're basically launching a separate app, a point of sale for uh, the cannabis industry. But what's going to differentiate them from the other cannabis point of sales is that they have all this compliance stuff. Well, that's kind of it for the, my top stories this week. And we're getting toward the end. I've got one last fun fun story for the holidays. The holidays are a stressful time. One of the things that can make it a little bit more stressful is tipping. Tipping's difficult in general, hard to know who you tip anymore, and often we're not carrying cash, so how do we do it? I've never really known, other than asking folks like my parents, you know, who to tip during the holidays and how to tip and all that stuff. And so thank you. Thank you to Brian Strig, CPA. He is at C Brian CPA on Twitter. Thanks for tweeting this out. It's the CNBC holiday tipping guide. Here's whom you should tip and how much you should give this holiday season. Check out the link in the show notes. How much do you think you should tip a housekeeper, David? I don't know, but I'm going to judge this article. Does it have newspaper boy on it? Newspaper boy, what's that? That's what I'm saying. Like, is it on the list? Like, is this just a recycled article from years and years and decades ago? Or is this like... Uh, Well, now you're making me wonder if I did enough research or if I just got (laughs) clickbaited. It's from uh, Care.com's 2019 Cost of Holidays Survey. So, it is new data. It is new data. Okay, got it. So, according to that holiday survey, 80% of those polled said they give holiday tips and 54% tip at least three people. It's not always clear, though, if you should tip a service provider for the holidays, and if so, how much. You know, here you can learn how much should you tip a housekeeper, childcare provider, building staff, personal trainers, and massage therapists, hairstylists, and barbers, pet caretakers, garbage collectors, newspaper delivery person. And funny enough, uh, Brian commented in his post that uh, accountants should be on that list, right? Why not? <laughs> Why don't we tip our accountants? So basically, you can give a tip to anybody you want. I mean, that list is pretty long. Well, the recommendation is that. Look at the individuals who have helped you throughout the year, said etiquette expert Elaine Swan. 
individuals who helped to make your life easy, assisted you in some shape or fashion. Those are the people who uh, deserve a tip. So I think accountants could could be on this list too. We might have to you know send a letter to the editor. We have to get a jar and an accountant's need a bell. So when they get a tip, they ring it. One thing that stands out about the people on this list is these are people who are helping throughout the year. These are people that your housekeeper, your childcare provider, your building staff, you're interacting with these people on a daily or at least a weekly basis. And so if we as accountants want to get tips, we got to interact more with our clients. See what I did there? Yes, yes, yes. So do you think, um, are, are there any accountant firms that you've heard of that are just working on a tips model only? A tips model only? Like, uh, and I'll do your tax return and then you decide how much you want to pay? Yeah. Uh, hey, maybe that would work. I don't know. Because I think that my my um, understanding of all this from um, listening to people like Ron Baker talk is that when people do this, people wind up tipping more. Well, like you wind up, they wind up giving you more than what you would have charged. Right. Well, that's actually a, a critical element of value pricing, which is you actually ask the client or the prospect, what do you think this is worth? What would you pay for this rather than giving them a price? And and then oftentimes you you know you might find that the price that they say is more than what you would have said. Yeah. Uh, so so and tipping is essentially a, a you know an element of that, or there's some aspect of that in there. And and another thing that uh, I learned from uh, Ron Baker's book is, or one of those books, implementing value pricing, is that include a quality guarantee where the client doesn't have to pay if they're not happy. And then you can actually include tips. Like in the proposal, you say, if, if we deliver this to your total satisfaction, then you agree that you will you know, pay this extra amount. It's more than you would have gotten if you hadn't included it, right? It's essentially building a tip into the proposal or into the engagement. Why not try it, right? Yeah, everybody put a little a little pitch-in button. To send a pitch-in email to your clients this, this fall. Uh, so that's all I got. We've got one more episode, I think, until the end of the year. So oh, we got two more Fridays. Okay, we got two more. David, until next week, how do people get in touch with you if they want to connect with you online? Uh, the easiest way is probably Twitter. I'm at David Leary. And I'm at Blake T. Oliver. And as always, it was great talking with you, David, and I'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. <laughs>